today on CityCast DC. If you had to pick the four most iconic Washingtonians, who would they be and why? Brianna Thomas, who wrote the book Black Broadway in DC, joins us to argue who would be on DC's very own Mount Rushmore. It's Monday, August 29th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer. And I'm Bridget Todd. And this is CityCast DC. So when we were uh, talking about doing an episode about who would be on DC's Mount Rushmore, my first thought was about like the real Mount Rushmore. And, you know, it has presidents on it, leaders, people with political power. And so I started trying to make a list of those for DC, and it's not an especially great list. So that's sort of what I came up with. But then I got into this whole other thing, and maybe you guys have thoughts about this, about like, well, if it's Washington's Mount Rushmore, what does Washington mean? Because people here have a tendency to to define local really, really locally in order to set off from the national and like eliminate someone because they're from somewhere else or whatever. But um, but that was sort of, that's where I wound up about what we should be doing. But what about you, Bridget? So I, it would never even occur to me to pick, you know, world leaders and people who, you know, had an impact on politics or history. No, 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 no. I was like, ooh, who, who do I like in music and in film and in fashion? So when we were talking about the people that we chose for our Mount Rushmore, that Mine was almost entirely like entertainment professionals. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, maybe I should actually broaden that focus a little bit to include, you know, people who had an impact on other areas of of DC life as well. Um, All right, Brianna, what about you? You're the tiebreaker here. And I really do think I am the tiebreaker um, because I had a mix of both. I was stuck in between the national politics side and then I was like, but all the entertainers and the music. And I didn't know what to choose either. And I wish I had a list of 40 instead of just four. Um, but yeah, I think I came up with some pretty cool people, though. Yeah, that's the problem with Mount Rushmore is when they only have four people and you need to be representative of everything. Um, but just to be clear, I wasn't saying that we should have like Harry Truman or something, you know what I mean? Like, I meant, uh, should it be like local political leaders, of which we have had not very many years of opportunity um, and not huge quality to choose from? Um, and then I started thinking, you know, like like y'all say, maybe it's better to just have some cool people up there and uh, not to wor- not worry so much about like how crucial their historic impact was, but just to say, I, I really dig this person. I'm proud to be from the same place as them. Yeah, my my list was definitely more in the vein of I really like this person and like, wouldn't it be nice to have them on a Mount Rushmore of D.C.? I sure like them. (laughs) So besides me, uh, who you got, Bridget? (laughs) Well, obviously, it starts with Michael Schaefer. It starts and ends with Michael Schaefer. Um, No. So should I go through the whole list? Do it. Okay. so the first iteration of my list was Andre Leontali, who I love, um, fashion designer, writer, culture creator, rest in peace, Uh, Duke Ellington, the jazz musician, Marvin Gaye, no explanation needed. And then I had snuck Taraji P. Henson on there just because I like Taraji P. Henson. She's from DC. I love that being a fun fact about her. But then when we talked, I was like, well, no disrespect to Miss Henson. Her, Her work is, you know, iconic. But then I was like, I really don't know if she's someone who, you know, is necessarily representative of DC. So I took her off and I added Marion Barry. 
the reason why I wanted to put Barry on the list for so many reasons, but one is just that like his summer jobs program, like I have family today who, if you bring up Barry and Barry, the first thing they will say is like, oh, I got my first job because of him. Like, oh, I work in DC government because of him. And so I have just seen the long-term lasting impact of that one program that he championed. I still see it today. And like, I just have to like plus, plus, plus that because I think it had such a lasting impact. That's going to be a controversial choice because I, I was I was tempted by the same thing. You know, as a reporter, like he is a he was a terrible scoundrel in many many ways, but he was also the most talented and compelling uh, public official the city's ever produced in a city that's not produced a whole lot of colorful public officials, uh, nor a whole lot of public officials who really were able to channel uh, the aspirations of a whole lot of people, um, even if he ultimately uh, was not a great public servant once he was given the power to channel those aspirations. Um, all right, Brianna, what about you? Yeah, so I also had Duke Ellington, which maybe we all have Duke Ellington, just because that is like the epitome of a DC icon, even in a historical context. And I really went the history route just because of my kind of researcher brain in history. Um, I did have Mayor Marion Barry as well, but because of the controversy, I was like, eh, let's take him off the list. So my other uh, people, I have Chuck Brown, who was my number one choice, actually. Um, Nanny Helen Burroughs, the uh, educator, the civil rights activist. She came out of the 20th century era. And then I also had Carter G. Woodson, who's the father of Black history, taught at Howard University, second Black person to earn a PhD at Harvard University. So a lot of historical figures are on my list, but I also had some other ideas. And one add-on, this is not, this makes like four and a half. <laughs> but, See, we're already cheating. <laughs> but Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, because it came to me when I was trying to switch people out and I was like, wait, how could she not be a DC icon too? So, yeah. You know, I think the other thing about your guys' lists and much of mine too is these weren't really people who shaped the city in the sense of like literally, you know, I live where I live because somebody, you know, fought for something here. I picked uh, L'Enfant, Pierre oh. L'Enfant, who was the designer of DC, who was eventually run out of town on a rail for like <laughs> blowing his budget and stuff. Um, but who, you know, I think one of the most one of the coolest things about DC is the way the city looks and is shaped. And it's, you know, it, it feels very different from other American cities. It's not tall like them. It's got these, these uh, avenues and these angles. Um, and that is a, you know, it was not all his doing, but it was a function of the original uh, grid of the city. Um, and I, uh, I also picked um, just cause it seemed kind of fun. Uh, Alexander R. Shepard, who was no! the, uh, <laughs> who was the governor of DC and, and uh, this cat was, you know, was after the Civil War and and was uh, sort of like uh, the DC's version of bosses in a lot of uh, big uh, cities. But, you know, the Washington people, people's uh, uh, notes and memoirs from the Civil War, this was it, you know, it didn't have sidewalks. It was a really, you know, they, they, L'Enfant laid out this big city, but there wasn't a whole lot to fill it. The Civil War really did populate it in a way it hadn't been uh, before. But sort of making it into a place that kind of worked uh, hadn't really happened before that. And again, uh, the, uh, it wasn't necessarily done on on budget or uh, with uh, appropriate uh, ethics or justice. Um, and then the the uh, the other name uh, I 
came up with was uh, Mary Church Terrell, who was uh, a civil rights leader uh, whose career kind of, she, she came to DC, I think in like the 1890s, but was still doing sit-ins in the 1950s. So it spanned this huge uh, uh, span of time uh, and, uh, and of American history. And uh, she seems like a really cool person. I love her too. Well, so wait, we do all have Duke Ellington in common. I put him on uh, on on my list uh, as well. So Duke Ellington, he is known as the man who created the 20th century swing. He was born in 1899. Um, he spent a lot of his childhood years growing up within the uh, T Street area off of 13th Street, but he also lived in many places throughout DC. And he did eventually move to New York. So that is my one thing about him being a DC icon. However, even though he had a long-standing career in New York, playing and performing at the Cotton Club, um, being featured on NBC, multiple TV stations, his name, his band name was called the Washingtonian. So even though he was in New York, he still took the spirit of D.C. with him. And then, of course, he came back to D.C. all throughout his career and performed at various places. So Duke Ellington doesn't just have his homes in D.C. that are preserved, but he also has a school named after him off of our street, the Duke Ellington School of Arts. All right. So that's Duke Ellington. But you had another way more D.C. Uh, musician on your list. Talk to us about him. Yeah, so my number one choice uh, was Chuck Brown. He's originally from North Carolina, but he grew up within the U Street Corridor. Legend has it that he did a lot of odd jobs to, you know, make ends meet. And he shined the shoes of famous people, even being, once again, Duke Ellington, um, Count Basie, another jazz leader. And eventually he created this music, which is now DC's official music, and it's called Go-Go Music. And that's has the Congo drums. It has this uh, large percussion break. And the name came out of him saying it just goes and goes because in between sets, he would have his drummers continue to play. So the party never stopped. So here was my thing with uh, with Chuck Brown, um, which is that so go-go music from the what 70s to now, um, kind of fading a little bit, uh, but still uh, has been like a, a really popular music form. You know, Ellington is on the list because it's been like 100 years. And so I think we can like all agree <laughs> that like ja the jazz is like an established American form. Um, other things that like are really impactful and meaningful, um, we just like, we don't know about the test of time because the test of time hasn't really uh, happened. Um, uh, that's to take that doesn't take anything away from them. But that was just my uh, that was my thinking about why to not pick him for like one of the four on Rushmore. But he did have a number one Billboard hit, nineteen seventy nine, Bust and Loose, which if you play at any party will still get you dancing. And my kind of, um, and I'm going to probably say this again, but if you have a street named after you, you can be a DC icon in my book. So he has oh. Chuck Brown Way off of 7th Street, right near Howard Theater, where he performed a lot. So, you know, he, he counts on my list. <laughs> I included um, Boss Shepard and Brianna, you booed. Why? <laughs> I did boo because, you know, he really did make DC a beautiful place. It was a mess during that time period, right? You mentioned no sidewalks, the parks and all of the, none of that really existed. However, it was because of him and his leadership and really kind of wanting to push this board of public works that we eventually had no mayor for like a century. 
So that's why I booed him because, you know, he single-handedly almost got rid of D.C. government for like almost 100 years. Although he made D.C. look very pretty, though. (laughs) (laughs) And I think like if you look at mayors of the Gilded Age, he is like certainly does not lead the pack for crookedness. And uh, but he got blamed because of Congress. Yeah, I see that. He's not on my list, though. I can't put him on my list. (laughs) Uh, So, Bridget, what about you? I wanted to start with Marvin Gaye because, yeah, I just don't know that... I don't think that people talk about Marvin Gaye as being from D.C. as much as they should. He got his start in D.C. D.C. was a really big part of his music and sort of like how his career came together. Marvin Gaye and his friends had this way that they described D.C., which is simple city to describe that, which I always think of like... It being in the middle of these two these two different poles, there's not that many people that I would say had such a lasting impact on music and culture. Like we wouldn't have Michael Jackson, we wouldn't have so many important people in our culture if not for Marvin Gaye. And I think the idea of him on Mount Rushmore to, to signal that, like, yes, that is a D- that is DC's national cultural global impact. I agree with you there, Bridget. I definitely agree with you on that one. And he has that mural, too, um, near 7th Street. So here's my thing with Marvin Gaye. Like, answer me this. Is, is the, the sort of, was there anything about the Washington milieu that, uh, or whatever was going on culturally or whatever that shaped his music, his sound, et cetera? Because I'm sort of like, all right, Washington is a big city. And uh, like any big city, it's going to produce its share of like athletes and musicians and statesmen and astronauts and whatever. And in in order to not feel like Palookaville, (laughs) I feel like if we're claiming them, you know, we should be able to say, well, yeah, and the way he was was shaped by blank. And I'm not like a a music historian, um, so I don't know the answer to this. And maybe no one does. But that's the kind of. Like how particularly since he, unlike Ellington, came up at a time when uh, pop music was really had been kind of nationalized and people were able to listen to records from people from all over. Uh, how like where what was the D.C. in him? Yeah. So I do. I can tell you that his first musical work was started in D.C. Him and his friend uh, Reese Palmer, they started a, a vocal quartet called the Marquis and they performed all over D.C. and soon started working with Bo Diddley. Uh, and so, you know, I, I could I'm no no music expert, but. I do think that, like, you know, it wasn't like he started in D.C. and then, like, moved to Chicago or New York. His first, the first time that he was making music, you know, getting his start was in D.C. And I think working with Bo Diddley in D.C. is, like, a pretty big deal. I couldn't say that, like... DC is is why his music sounds the way it is. But mm-hmm. I do think getting your start in DC at a time, you know, at the time that he was, for me, makes it impactful. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. I will say Marvin Gaye is probably not going to make my top four. I will, I, will <laughs> <laughs> I love the DC connection, but I don't know if it I agree. I don't know if he really embody Washington, D.C., you know, all throughout his career. I'm not sure. I feel like my list is definitely skewed toward like, oh, well, what national slash global impact that they have and how could we trace that back to our favorite little city? But I think that that's also like an actual ongoing divide that people here have, you know, particularly when we try to police the line between like what constitutes like federal that we locals aren't supposed to care about and what doesn't. Someone who came to D.C., in the in the like when they were at a young adult i would never add or like someone who came but someone who wasn't born in dc i would never think to add Mm. because 
I mean, you you know, Michael, there are so few people who are like truly like born in DC. Right. That's like a rare thing. And so for me, it's like, oh, well, we got to start there because that that alone is like a rare thing. I think particularly given how kicked around uh, DC has been in national politics and stuff, I think we should be like as broad minded and, and open and inclusive as possible about who counts as one of us because we need all the help we can get. And, uh, you know, I say this as someone, I, I was born here, uh, but uh, I also, uh, it's awesome that this is a place people want to move to. I mean, that if you do a list of, of states in the country that uh, have not had a whole lot of uh, demographic turnover where people want to move there, most of them are states you don't want to live in. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it's, you know, we should all be, we are all very lucky that we are in a place that people have, want to move to and people have for a very long time wanted to move to. And I think so much of the greatest cultural legacy of the city were, you know, people moving up from the South uh, because they could work in the federal government because they could go to Howard uh, or uh, people moving here because they were idealistic and wanted to take part in politics and then wound up like becoming parts of their own like physical community where they lived. These are all great things about Washington. And I think like we should err on the side of it, uh, including them. Ooh. Oh, you just reminded me of another candidate for the monument, Isabel Wilkerson. I did not know she was born in D.C., but she wrote um, The Warmth of Other Sons, which won a Pulitzer about the Great Migration. And so, like, I once saw her talk, and one of the things that she said was that, like, uh, I knew that she had grown up in D.C., and that because D.C. wasn't a state when she was here, you know, didn't have home rule or anything, she described it as, like, feeling like she was a citizen of the world because she didn't necessarily have the, the same kind of ties that you would if you grew up someplace that, like, you know, was a, like, was an actual state. And I always thought that was such an interesting, an interesting way to, like, describe the experience of, of D.C. Like, people come and go and they can still have an impact. And so, I don't know, I think it speaks to what you were saying, Mike, that, like, just because somebody moves here or migrates here doesn't mean they can't have an impact, doesn't mean they can't be included. And in fact, Wanting to come here is like a beautiful thing that we should, um, at its core, kind of celebrate. Totally. Totally. Amen to that. Hey, you guys, this was fun. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Brianna. Come back soon. And before you head out, some quick news. First, the Metro was, surprise, surprise, a mess yet again this weekend. For the second week in a row, multiple lines had single tracking and upwards of 20-minute long waits. Were you caught up in the midst of all this? Leave us a voicemail at 202-642-2654 because we want to hear all about it. Meanwhile, doctors at Children's Medical Hospital say they've been receiving many hostile and threatening phone calls and emails over the past week. It's fallout from a video by the conservative group Libs of TikTok, which baselessly alleges the hospital's performing hysterectomies for trans minors. Now, there is no evidence this is happening. Far-right social media accounts have been targeting hospitals across the East Coast for their gender care programs. Finally, the Federal Highway Administration has okayed Maryland's plan to add carpool toll lanes on 495 and 270. The state's Board of Public Works still needs to approve the final contract later this fall, so don't expect rush hour traffic to ease up anytime soon. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Talk to you then.
So wait, we should talk about Barry, shouldn't we? Oh, no. It's like we don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> we don't talk about Barry. No, no, no. 